Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Mumia Abu-Jamal, an internationally recognized imprisoned journalist, won his right to appeal his sentence earlier this week. He has been held since 1982 for the slaying of a police officer in a widely disputed case in which he maintains his innocence. Juvenile prisoners rose up at the Feltham Youth Offenders Institution in the United Kingdom. 20 guards were injured while repressing it, with 13 requiring transportation to the hospital on a minibus. The Guardian reported this week that the fourth prisoner in six weeks died in the San Diego County Jail. San Diego has the second highest mortality rate of California cities. Over the past 10 years, 135 prisoners have died inside the San Diego jail. Of the recent deaths, both medical neglect and guard violence have been factors. On the other side of the border, imprisoned refugees rioted inside the National Migration Institute facility, an immigrant detention center in Tijuana, Mexico. Prisoners from Guatemala, Cuba, and India set fires. The director of the facility said, it was not a problem of overcrowding. It was a problem of a couple of people who did not agree with their housing situation wanting to create a disturbance, which resulted in this. Honduran refugees also rebelled inside a facility in Mexicali in January. 23 participants in that uprising were transferred to the Tijuana facility. This week, we continue the conversation between Toussaint Lozier and Nicole Siegel. This is part two of a series in which we hear Lozier, author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement, speak to Siegel about his research while writing his book in which he builds a cohesive picture of the long history of incarceration. In this episode, Lozier speaks about resistance to incarceration from World War II into the early 1970s. For Lozier, this period is where we find the rise of the big house ideal, with prisons seen primarily as a rehabilitative institution. This period saw unprecedented gains in prisoner self-determination and labor organizing, and particularly intense struggle in the prison rebellion years of 1968 to 1972. Here they are. Let's move on then to the next period, what you call in this book, the period of rights, mm -hmm. 1940 to 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, I guess, the moment of the demise of convict labor mm -hmm. and the rise of the rehabilitative ideal, mm -hmm. or what you call the big house mm -hmm. in incarceration. So um, tell me about some of the big, important ideological and political buttresses of this period. Mm -hmm. So we try to do a couple things with this in looking at this period, because um, it's one that in many ways is foundational for understanding uh, what happens during the prison rebellion years of the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. but is, I think, less well understood. Um, so one thing that we mark in particular is the impact of World War II, bringing about both the demise of uh, the convict lease system and also the internment of Japanese and Japanese-American people, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly the way in which both the forms of resistance that get taken up in the um, internment camps as well as some of the legal challenges 
are not necessarily connected to what happens later, but almost as sort of a prologue. It like foreshadows what we'll see later on. Mm. Um, what are some of the forms of resistance in Japanese internment camps? So there's forms of protest um, that are geared towards, in the most, I think, dramatic instances, a rejection of the sort of process of um, kind of pledging allegiance to the United States, identifying with the U.S. war effort that rejects that, lays the foundation for like a really militant kind of identification with the Japanese imperial project that in some ways we sort of say is kind of like a, a reflection of how there's this sort of nationalist in some ways backlash to the way in which incarceration is being managed at this particular time and ideas about rehabilitation are being kind of pushed on people. Mm-hmm. Um, we then a wave of rebellions and riots take place within these sort of big house prisons around the country. One of the things that we, we try we try to look at with these wave of protests is why do they happen, right? Okay. And essentially when we look at it, it is an attempt to shift slightly the balance of power between prisoners and prison administrators mm-hmm. and to um, to win some concessions for basically prisoners are in most instances are not demanding a complete end to the way big house prisons are managed but are highlighting some of the ways in which earlier privileges or freedoms within the constrained environment of prisons that they might have enjoyed um, trying to kind of pull back on those and one of the things that we do try to like demonstrate in that context is that if you look under the surface of those strikes uh those riots there was an odd involvement of black prisoners and sometimes instances latino prisoners within that broader wave and that in many ways um what we're also seeing is as much as there's a sort of renegotiation over the terms between prisoners and prison administrators there's not necessarily a challenge to the broader kind of unwritten sort of jim crow um dynamic of incarceration that's also taking place within those prisons. And the more consequential development that takes place in the late 50s and the early 60s that also is kind of analogous to the internment camp protests is the rise of organizing to challenge Jim Crow segregation that exists within prisons, mm-hmm. the color line that exists within prisons at this moment in time. And in a way that speaks to anti-adoption of sort of U.S. norms and increasing militant attitude amongst some of the, like a small subset of the um, the internees um, during World War II, you also have the growth in prisons across the United States, especially on the East and the West Coast and the Midwest, of uh, the Nation of Islam amongst black prisoners. And what we try to suggest is that as much as the Nation of Islam is understood and looked at as a religious organization, that it had a particular political form in prisons, and that political form helped to both push struggle against forms of uh, segregation within mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. prisons to organize black prisoners in a way that really hadn't happened beforehand to challenge some of those forms of segregation, mm-hmm. but as in, in an even more consequential way, support legal challenges to the way in which prisons were operating at this moment. I recently interviewed Garrett Felber, mm-hmm. our colleague here, mm-hmm. uh, who talked extensively about this phenomenon of the Nation of Islam in prison mm-hmm. and how their legal challenges became mm-hmm. some of the core of a prison movement in this moment. Yep. So what you're what you were talking about about the Nation of Islam mm-hmm. reminds me that 
what you and your co-author are suggesting about this period mm -hmm. is that the courts were a particularly important site for prisoner activism. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how the concept of citizenship yeah. and nationalism were important to the prison movement? Yeah, if you think about it, the question of rehabilitation, right, yeah. as one of sort of saying that this person who's incarcerated is, is in need of treatment, is in need of some kind of program, but at the end of the day is going to come back as a citizen, is going to come back as a, um, as a worker. Part of what the Nation of Islam and other jailhouse lawyers, writ writers were able to do was to attenuate the courts to the, to the contradiction of limiting judicial accountability, limiting the sort of idea of access to even a limited set of rights, limiting that at the jailhouse door. And specifically the Warren Court, which was most well known for the Brown versus Board of Education decision and mm -hmm. other sort of mm -hmm. landmark civil rights cases, was also responsible for identifying the possibility that prisoners could make claims upon the court to claim particular constitutional rights behind bars. And most mm -hmm. interestingly, one of the things that the Nation of Islam does, one of the innovations that they make that then becomes influential for other prisoners who are not members of the nation, is they use uh, a Reconstruction Era law that allows individuals to make claims at the federal level for state actions that had years after the demise of Reconstruction kind of been absorbed into the federal civil code use that as a legal mechanism by which they could make claims upon the actions or inactions of state correctional officials within the prison environment. So it's mm -hmm. kind of using one of the legacies of Reconstruction to um, win a limited set of rights, a limited access to the courts um, uh, while they're behind bars. Mm -hmm. And part of what we then try to do is really look at the ways in which some of the changes that are taking place in incarceration especially sort of in this prisoner rights moment, are not just changes that are brought about by organizing, but also changes that are brought about through this form of petitioning the courts, filing suits, and what have you. And that in a really unique way that I think is not echoed by any other social movement is you have a very homegrown, grassroots, self-taught form of legal knowledge that becomes an important arm of the way in which the movement operates. So you have prisoners who are not just organizing uh, strikes, protests, but also filing legal suits in a way that are consequential to changing, uh, in some instances, how individual prisons operate, in in broader sense, how entire state correctional systems operate. And that in particular moments, the prison movement has been able to make use of not just collective struggle, but also the um, the legal action that has you know occasioned some opportunities for change. And when you think about it, that makes a whole lot of sense because that's also the tactic of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. in this period. Mm -hmm. It's very court focused. Yep. And one of the things that you write about in this mm -hmm. chapter is the context mm -hmm. of the uh, U.S. South civil rights movement, mm -hmm. which is um, in gearing up and then in mm -hmm. in full. Um, What's the word? Full in full bloom, in, in, full bloom yes. in this period, yes. yeah. And um, 
So the, and it makes a lot of sense also in relation to the rehabilitative ideal, mm -hmm. which I had never thought of really in this way before, but it is about restoring mm -hmm. a person to full citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so it makes a lot of sense that the mm -hmm. idea of citizenship, mm -hmm. which is a legal mm -hmm. relationship of the person to the state, yeah. would be the, um, the opportunity for purchase, sort of mm -hmm. the coin with which people would try to play mm -hmm. this game. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah. that, that makes a lot so of sense. So like, for instance, the Nation of Islam prisoners, and Garrett probably talked about this a lot, make use of uh, First Amendment uh, religious rights claims. Mm -hmm. to say, yeah, yeah, that's hey, right. We should be able to access our right to freely practice our religion behind bars. Yeah. Um, and that more so than, hey, we're being, you know, racially discriminated against or we're being... Um, treated unfairly in terms of the amount of time that we're being kept in isolation or something like that is much more successful at the at the level of um, winning some degree of, of um, court attention. So we left off in the 50s to some, and now we're going to talk about uh, the period of 1968 to 1972, the years of prison rebellions. Mm -hmm. So would you, would you tell us, um, why do you call those four years the years of prison rebellions? Um, well, one is a term that is used by other scholars, right? Uh, the sort of prison rebellion years as being a, an important way to kind of denote what takes place during the the levels of activity, heightened activity behind bars that we see during the late 1960s and early 1970s. Building on that as a sort of periodization uh, and one that's become pretty popular amongst scholars at least. And obviously you feel that it's justified. It's justified. Yeah. Um, I mean, we kind of even move the the um, the poll a little bit further in terms of even referring to it as a, really as a period of revolutionary politics behind bars. Mm -hmm. um, and that part of what we're trying to point to are the ways in which, obviously this is a high point of uh, struggle um, and really militant struggle um, across the country, but really try to point to the central role that prisons play in the strategic landscape of a lot of uh, folks, um, whether they be on the new left, whether they be in the black liberation uh, struggle or the uh, Chicano movement or uh, the American Indian movement, the understanding that prisons were an important site of struggle um, is one that, uh, and not just struggle, but the potential for a revolutionary transformation of society mm -hmm. is one that we try to highlight. You're not just talking about stuff that's happening behind bars in this period. You're talking about social movements on the outside also reckoning with and mm -hmm. engaging with mm -hmm. prison radicalism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this is one of the things that makes... Like the book is Rethinking the American Prison Movement. Uh, and if you were to just sort of think about it in a very general sense, most people would associate the prison movement with this period of time, right? Late 1960s, early 1970s. And part of what it makes it such a more well-known period of time is not just the levels of activity that are taking place behind bars, but the ways in which that organizing behind bars is in conversation, is in dialogue, is being publicized, is being lifted up by activists, by supporters who mm -hmm. are in solidarity with prisoners on the outside. Right, right. So can you give us some examples first of revolution activism happening behind bars mm -hmm. in prisons? Sure. So um, probably the best uh, known example is that of George Jackson. And uh, George Jackson, I think, exemplifies this to some degree. One, because of his politicization behind bars, the ways in which his political education 
builds on some of the legacies of what had taken place during the 60s in terms of the growth of the Nation of Islam behind bars, the development of kind of anti-prison Jim Crow efforts that take place in uh, relatively racially segregated prisons in California. And um, his challenge to a sort of kind of a liberal rehabilitation approach to incarceration because he has this notorious indeterminate sentence. He's kind of a one-year-to-life sentence that repeatedly leaves him behind bars because he's consistently denied parole. And, you know, goes before the parole board and he's de- denied over year after year. Over. Mm-hmm. Nope. And um, the ways in which his political activities are focused on the potential for prisoners to play an important role in revolutionary struggle, his calls for a militant kind of politics and one that is centered on the importance of armed struggle. This is something that he not only does in isolation, but because of the ways in which he's targeted by prison authorities for being responsible for the death of a prison guard, uh, becomes one of the uh, key figures in the uh, Soledad Brothers defense campaign, um, which um, Angela Davis becomes involved in, mm-hmm. and through the um, the Communist Party USA. And so that set of relationships, that set of kind of like movement connections, mm-hmm. um, then later his involvement with the Black Panther Party as mm-hmm. kind of like an inside organizer, a field marshal for the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. um, really speaks to the ways in which this movement was one that um, understood or at least had its eyes on the possibilities of revolutionary struggle at this moment in time, that prisoners as sort of disadvantaged terrain as prisons were, prisoners could play an important role in that from both a, a personnel perspective as well as a like an intellectual contributions kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. And the way in which this movement behind bars really drew in key forces on the left, so to speak, at this moment in time. That his politics builds on, obviously, earlier rounds of prison struggle, as well as kind of intersects with a whole host of other movements that are taking place. And in particular, and we try to point this out, that as important as Jackson was as a figure, there was also a significant amount of organizing behind bars by um, black, Latino, white prisoners, at least in California, led to multiple prison strikes, work stoppages, Mm -hmm. boycotts that took place, any in particular that you want to um, highlight? Well, one, I mean, the this is kind of speaks to even some of these connections. In San Quentin, there was an important... San Quentin was one of the kind of uh, early uh, sites of some of these sort of work stoppages that mm-hmm. took place. In Northern California. In Northern California. And that work stoppage, which really tried to bring in prisoners of all kind of constituencies together, had an impact not just on galvanizing outside support, but also encouraging prisoners in other prisons to take up a similar sort of campaign around both prison conditions as well as the limitations, the hollowness, the hypocrisy of a rehabilitative approach to incarceration. Um, And most interestingly, in Folsom, Folsom Prison, there was another series of prison strikes that not only challenged the administration, but also coalesce in a set of demands and Mm -hmm. one of the ways in which later the Attica prison rebellion which took Mm -hmm. place in 1971 one of the ways that prison authorities tried to undermine it to kind of discount its legitimacy Mm -hmm. was to say the set of demands that came that was presented to the administration out of in Attica was built on kind of copied to some degree the set of demands that came out of Folsom so you Mm -hmm. have this not only 
various different individual sites of struggles that are taking place, but ways in which prisoners all the way across the country and other states and town, a whole other coast of the country are watching what's taking place in, um, amidst these other struggles and even taking some of the, the language, the points of concern that prisoners and other institutions are raising. And that's not being done without, that's being done uh, precisely because of the support of outside allies and um, you know, is that how the folks. communication is going? It's to how some of it's how some of the communication is taking place, both mm-hmm. from lawyers, from movement supporters, from journals, and we detail some of the, the the kind of literary production that's coming out of some of these different institutions. The way that prisoners are developing their own newsletters and are looking to circulate them. Uh, and getting some assistance circulating them. And that's also how some of this information is traveling to different places. And these ideas are, cha- are traveling. So Attica, 1971, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is right in the middle of the four years that you're calling the mm-hmm. prison rebellion years. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little, remind our listeners what happens at Attica? So Attica is the toughest prison in the New York State correctional system. And part of what happened in Attica had to do with the terrible conditions in that institution, a kind of almost medieval conditions there, as well as the way in which the correctional officials in New York State tried to address prisoner organizing all across the state all and within New York City as well by basically shipping the most most militant, most experienced prison organizers mm-hmm. from different institutions to what they considered to be the end of the line, the toughest prison, mm-hmm. which was Attica. And, and also one nice and far away from New York City, making yes. it very difficult for their relatives to visit them. Exactly. And one where there was very little uh, connection with individuals in the surrounding community, potentially right. prison guards and things of that nature. A very white community very white guards community. and surroundings. Mm-hmm. And so part of what happens in Attica is the way that I try to understand it Part of what took place what through these transfers was really the creation of Attica by night by like late 1960s, but really early 1970, 71 as kind of really the um, a hotbed of some of the most experienced organizers, some of whom had come out of prison work strikes that had taken place in other institutions like Auburn and also a series of prison rebellions that took place in New York City, in the New York City jail system in oh. 1970. Oh, tell us about those. So in, in New York City in 1970, beginning in August of 1970 and also continuing through October, prisoners, in response to overcrowding and really poor conditions that existed in uh, the city's jail system, and really these long periods of being held behind bars for people who hadn't even been convicted of crimes but were simply awaiting waiting, and, trial. Uh, waiting mm-hmm. trial, many of whom were uh, involved in um, either on the peripheries or directly involved as cadre in revolutionary organizations like the Black Panther Party, the Young mm-hmm. Lords Party, the Weather Underground, uh, or what would become the Weather Underground, got involved in organizing within some of these jails and were actually um, took over at the high point of the struggle, which was in October of 1970, five correctional institutions at the same time. Wow, what um, coordination must and have it, been and it was really, to do that. Yeah, it was really amazing because there was uh, a degree of coordination, there was a degree of building on other struggles that had been taking place, hearing on the radio that other institutions had, had uh, come under prisoner control. You had activists with the Black Panther Party who were on trial at that moment in time with the kind of infamous Panther 21 trial who got involved in some of this organizing. You had some of this organizing actually being being inspired by 
the death of Jonathan Jackson, George mm-hmm. Jackson's brother, mm-hmm. in the takeover of the um, Marin uh, County, Marin County uh, Courthouse, right? Courthouse, courthouse, that right. that um, way of thinking about both organizing is happening on the outside, outside the ground, having a direct influence on what's taking place behind bars. Right. This kind of movement perspective where people are people behind bars are seeing. Um, instances of kind of heightened struggle that's taking place in California or in other parts of the country. Um, and really that being a really um, a formative moment in terms of uh, the sort of political organizing that's taking place, leading to these series of takeovers that really threaten the overall correctional system within the city. That's really impressive. So this um, moment of fervent mm-hmm. then leads to um, a long decade of radicalism, mm-hmm. as you guys write about in as you... Uh, and Dan Berger, right in the next chapter, mm-hmm. you call the years 1972 to 1980 um, years of radicalism. Yeah. So tell us about what's happening both behind bars and in the connected social movements mm-hmm. in this period of the rest of the decade of the 1970s. Sure. So this is like one of the one of the parts of the book that I really I particularly appreciate because coming into this kind of research as a as a junior scholar. One of the things that sort of stands out is the Attica Prison Rebellion, the the shooting, killing of 39 prisoners and guards that takes place as the kind of authorities in New York seek to retake Attica after four or five days of occupation of mm-hmm. D-Yard by... The incredible uh, massacre. Yeah, that takes place. And really this kind of intense moment of repression. And a lot of the ways in which we sort of talk about prisoner organizing is it's that repression kind of snuffs out our sense of what took place at that moment in time. I think people um, look at that repression and think, well, that just ended it all. Not just that it ended it all, but we don't see something along the lines of Attica happen in the same sort of way I see. after right, right, that right. moment. Even though there are multiple, there, there's a whole series of uh, prison strikes and occupations that happen, because we don't see necessarily the exact same example being replicated it's almost as if and this is kind of the work that repression does is it's almost as if the retaking of Attica is a signal that this sort of thing is not happening anymore Mm -hmm. and one of the things that um, really comes out of our research on this period is that after Attica there's an amazing amount of prisoner organizing that continues some of it building on say what happened in California with these sort of labor strikes that develop into a real push for prisoner unionism to really develop a, in some instances, institution later statewide, and then at some, and there's some efforts to make it national, a uh, series of uh, prison labor unions that'll use labor law, essentially, to give prisoners an opportunity to exert greater control, not only over their workplace conditions and their demands for greater pay, but also to kind of exert some degree of control over the institutions themselves, mm-hmm. have a say in the way institutions are run. Mm-hmm. And we see that in places in um, uh, all, all across the country where these kind of labor unions, these kind of nascent labor unions are, are being developed. And uh, some of them lead to pretty dramatic um, instances of what some scholars refer to as prisoner self-determination, the kind of best example being in Walpole, Massachusetts, uh-huh. there's a, a strike by guards in response to a kind of liberal um, shift in policy where the guards, in response, go on strike and say, if you want to coddle prisoners, if you want to you want to uh-huh. treat these people like uh-huh. human beings, like citizens... That's um, not going to work for us. That's not going to work for us. Right. And what will not only protest it, but will walk off the job. And there was an wow. attempt to walk off the job as if to say, without us holding 
the line here in guarding the the gates against the kind of uh, all the kind of inhumane people who are behind these against walls against the horde. Against the horde, you'll see how untenable any kind of extension of basic rights mm. to prisoners is. And instead of it being untenable, you actually have prisoners organized through a national prisoner labor union how? running the institution themselves wow, for, how for, long? for um for several months wow. at a time. Yeah. That's and amazing. there's really interesting uh-huh. interaction that happens with uh support from um uh black communities in Boston and other parts of Massachusetts with kind of national labor rights, prisoner labor rights organizers. There's this really kind of formative moment where there's a sense of here's what's possible if prisoners themselves are able to organize and sort of push the agenda. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.